Oh my stars, I am so thrilled you're here. My name is Kai Graham and welcome to another episode in my podcast, The Parent and Teen Toolbox, which is designed to equip parents and teenagers with the tools for navigating adolescence. I've been in the trenches of parenting and now I'm on a mission to help parents support their teenagers so that together we can build a mentally healthier and happier generation of young people. Each week you will receive learnings and takeaways that will help you tackle the challenges and the oh shit moments that are often associated with parenting tweens and teens. I have your back and I'm glad you're here. Hello, you lovely lot, and thank you so much for listening. Today, we're talking all about imposter syndrome with Paul Wilson, who is the go-to mindset mentor for ambitious business owners. He has turned his lifelong interest in the mind and human behavior into his new career, helping people remove unwanted mental baggage and to step out of their own way. Trained in the radically different hypnosis without trance method, which is the control system, it was created by Tim Box. Paul has also studied more traditional methods, including those of Milton Erickson, Dr. Jonathan Royal, Jonathan Chase, Richard Bandler, and Scott Jansen. Paul is also a podcaster of A Happy Head. Paul, thank you for coming and talking today. So who who is your who, who's your sort of ideal client then? Who who are the people that you work with? If we're sort of talking here about the you know sort of emotional resilience, who who are the people that you're helping, and what are the main things that they're asking you for support about? It's a very good question. My kind of ideal client are women, generally kind of between thirty five and fifty, who one of two things. They've either started a business and got themselves stuck and want to get unstuck or they're in the corporate world and they find the corporate world very, very toxic, very kind of hostile and don't want to be there anymore. But kind of they've got an idea of a thing that they want to do, but they can't get their head around how to do the thing because they're still kind of so attached and stuck with the corporate world. And the thing that I work with most was imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is a disconnect between your your knowledge, your skills, your expertise, all that stuff you've, you've fought for years to grow and develop and build, and there's a disconnect between the new thing or something that you want to do. So, for example, the clients are stuck in corporate can't often see that all the the knowledge and experience they've gained in the world of corporate would be ideally suited to going freelance as a consultant, for example. They they just can't picture, I've not been a consultant, Paul, and I don't know anything about consultancy. Well, you do, because effectively in your role as a sales and marketing director, you've been a consultant for your company in that respect. You've been developing the sales and marketing processes for your organization. All we're saying now is you let you let go of the mothership and you sail off on your own working with different organizations rather than working under the umbrella of one organization. And I think that's what I mean, I, I find that with a lot of the the, the sort of the mums or that the I speak to is the fact that um 
somehow, somewhere along the way, we lose sight of who we are. We lose sight of the talents and the skills that we've got, maybe because we've been stuck in a dead-end job, maybe because we're stay-at-home mums. It doesn't sort of really matter. But somehow, I mean, I and and you know, this is this is a huge generalization, but somewhere along the midlife stage, women do send, tend to sort of get stuck and it's trying to get them and us because I I, I have been there um, a number of times actually, is trying to move out of that rut and trying to get us, whether or not it's building that confidence, whether or not it's through the self-worth, the value to realize that actually we've got so much to bring to the table. Um, and and I remember in my when I was switching sort of from one job to another, I didn't actually realize what imposter syndrome was until someone explained it to me. And I didn't realize it was a thing. And I just thought it was me and I'd lost my mojo. So it's it's really something that's quite prevalent for many, many women, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. And the thing is, what people need to realize is that imposter syndrome is not new. It was actually first coined as a term by a couple of scientists in the States back in the mid-70s. But the actual symptoms of imposter syndrome have been around forever. I call it, I call the symptoms my devil's triangle. If you imagine a triangle, down one side you've got procrastination, down the other side you've got perfectionism, and across the bottom you've got paralysis or overwhelm. And then within the triangle you've got fear of failure, fear of success, um, fear of what other people might might think to yourself, comparisonitis, and all that good stuff. So we've known, we've always known about procrastination, those other things, but a lot of people have never associated those three things in particular as being major symptoms of imposter syndrome. Because a lot of people haven't actually heard of imposter syndrome, but they've heard of procrastination and perfectionism. And these are three things that create that gulf, that divide I was talking about earlier on. You know, this this disconnect between the knowledge, the skills, the expertise, and the experience, and the thing that you want to do. And you described it perfectly, you know, being stuck and not believing or not accepting. You have got this stack of stuff that you need to bring to the world, but you just can't see it because you're so mired in being fed up with your job or having to deal with the kids and stuff isn't getting done and you don't have the time to actually take a step back and look at the amazing person that you actually are. This this is a bit of a revelation for me because I sort of thought that I, I remember the light bulb moment and it was sort of it, it was it was in my thirties sort of when I suddenly and that was rather a long time ago when I realised oh my god it's imposter syndrome that's what it is it's a thing it's not me going batty and I was able to sort of nearly pull myself out of it because I did. I felt as though I'd lost my mojo. I had the fear of failure. I didn't think that anyone had listened to me. All those blocks that you were talking about. But, Paul, I'm looking at this triangle. I've just written it down. Procrastination, perfectionism, and paralysis. I am suffering from those things today on a daily basis. So it's not to sort of say that, oh, now I know what imposter syndrome is. It, it, you know, I can get rid of it. These things are permanently raising their head for me personally. 
So, I mean, what do we do to keep all that at bay? I mean, I'm, I'm a master at writing blimmin' lists and telling myself, well, in order to do that, you've got to do this, this, and this. And yes, I'm. it's all those things. It's the paralysis. It's stopping me from moving forward. It's So what do we do here? How do we sort of push ourselves through this, even, even though there's me thinking how enlightened I was, realizing what imposter syndrome was? I'm actually... The, it is. It's like walking through treacle some day, some days. There's a, quite a lot to unpack there, but let's just <laughs> kind of start <laughs> with a bit of a brain dump, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a massive brain dump. But first of all, I want listeners to understand that you're not alone. Have you heard of Maya Angelou? Totally. She is an amazing person, public speaker, uh, radical activist. Um, author, and she's written in excess of 11 books. And she posted something recently, I think it was recently, and it's a real eye-opener. She says something like, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, I've always struggled with imposter syndrome. Even though I know I've written more than 11 books, every time I sit down to start a new book or to start a new project, this feeling comes over me that I'm a fake and I shouldn't be yes. here. And one day, people are going to find out. That's the important thing. People are going to suddenly start saying, bloody hell, who's this Maya Angelou? Who do you think she is? Even though I've written 11 books, even though I've been on the world stage and I've done this and I've done that, I still get these feelings. And I think that is such an eye-opening phrase. Michelle Obama, the former first lady, you know, the second most important person on the planet a few years back. She has admitted it with opera and other another sort of a presentation that she struck with imposter syndrome since day one. Always felt, and I think this is prevalent for women because you've got the glass ceiling and discrimination, all that other kind of stuff. And also, obviously, Michelle Obama's black and female, and she struggled with both of those things, feeling and being told that she'll never amount to anything, that she'll never be any good, that she's black and that she's female, and black females don't go anywhere and don't do anything. And she has actually sort of fallen into this pit sometimes of believing that, and that's held her back. And she's actually had to kind of fight within herself, tooth and nail, to claw her way out of these feelings and emotions of being not a person of importance. And obviously, Michelle Obama is a hugely inspirational, important person in the world right now. But even people like Maya... Angelou and Michelle Obama have these moments when they feel like they fa they're fakes and they shouldn't be there. Now, the way to get over it, there's several things you can do. You can work with someone like me, and that helps enormously. There's also things that you can do every single day. And what I'm going to do now, if that's okay with you, Kai, is give you three things that you can do starting today to help you combat these things. Yeah, absolutely so the, fantastic. So the first one is, and I'm, I know you can't see it, but I'm holding up a notebook. Grab yourself a notebook and a pen, and I want you to start. That something that I've called. Are you ready for this? It's a really superior, magnanimous title. The list. You get that? <laughs> Think you didn't get it? I'll say it again. This is a magnificent title. The list. Uh, basically, what I want you to do. I've talked about this disconnect. I want you to start writing down. This is a lifelong thing I want you to be doing every single day. Start writing down every single skill, qualification, 
thing that you have achieved in your lifetime. And I wanted to go right the way back to your kid. Were you a boy scout, girl guy? Did you get badges? Your school examinations? Were you on the football team, the hockey team, the netball team? All the kind of stuff you achieved in school. Then if you went to university, what kind of a degree did you get? Did you head any societies, any clubs? Did you work for charities? All the jobs you've had, every time you've applied for a job and got it, you've beaten other people to achieve that job. So that's, that's something that you've achieved. You've gone and done an interview. You've, you've written your CV. You've applied for the job. You've sent your CV. You've had one interview, maybe two interviews, sometimes even three interviews. You've got the job. You need to remember, even if you hate the job you're in right now, you've got that job. You put on your best gear and your best face. You went to the interview and you did what you need to do to get the job. Your, your driving license, your pilot's license, your everything, every single thing that you have achieved in your life, every bit of experience you've gained, all the skills you've picked up, all the qualification you've done through work, all the volunteering stuff that you do, all the charity stuff. If you've learned to cook, paint, build cars, renovate houses, I don't care. Get it all down and start listing it in this book. And why, Paul? Why do I need to do this? Well, here's the reason why. On the days... Oh, sorry, let me just rewind a second. Please do this with pen and paper or pencil and paper. Don't do it on a computer. I'm not a scientist, but there's evidence that when you actually physically do the act of writing with pen and paper, it goes into the brain and it sticks into the brain. The brain makes a connection, whereas... You don't have the same kind of connection with your computer when you're typing stuff out. But anyway, that's an aside. Whenever you're feeling that you're not worth it, that you don't have the skills, that you can't apply for that promotion, that you can't start that side hustle, that you can't talk about X, Y, or Z, you grab this book and you flip it open to any page and you start reading down the list. Yeah, pass my driving test first time got a 2-2 at university, I did that. And you read it out to yourself out loud. And what you're doing here is you're reminding your rational brain, your subconscious brain, that you have done stuff. This is really important. You're refreshing your memory that you have achieved things. You have done stuff. You are an amazing person. And what we're doing now is we're bridging that gap, that disconnect we talked about earlier on, you're creating, you're throwing kind of those mobile military bridges across the gap and bringing the gap close together so that you remind yourself of all the skills and knowledge and expertise and the experience that you have garnered over the years and that you can actually do that thing and that those skills, etc., are valuable and you can bring them into this new thing. Do you get that? You're quite right, because what I tend to find is that I'm part of this wretched triangle, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're bringing me, you know, you've reminded me of, is that it's that perfectionism. And what I tend to do is I forget to celebrate the wins. And it's that, oh, yeah, I've done this, but that was then and this is now and I'm not doing anything now. And I think we do. We need to remind ourselves, hang on a minute, we are more than capable. You know, if you were able to do X, Y and Z, then you are able to do A, B and C. And I think you're quite right. I I, I know I am sort of very much victim of this is, well, not victim, I'm just guilty of it, in that I do not stop and congratulate my, myself. I want to stop you right there. 
Did you hear all my negative words? Yes, guilty of this, <laughs> negative this, my fault, all that. One thing, if you do anything from listening to the conversation today, please, please, please do two things. Catch yourself whenever you're thinking negatively about yourself. That's the first step. But more importantly, and one thing that will change your life completely is as soon as you're about to say some negative about yourself, stop it. And then translate it into something neutral or better into something positive. So don't call yourself a victim. Don't say you're guilty. That's garbage. You're not a victim. Yeah. You're not guilty. If you're not aware of something and you do it, how can you be guilty? Yeah, if, you, if you didn't know that procrastination was a symptom of imposter syndrome, how on earth would you know that you've got imposter syndrome? You might just think oh, I'm procrastinating an awful lot. So yeah. please stop using any kind of negative, even when you're joking, oh, I'm not going to play tennis with you tomorrow, Paul, because I'm hopeless at tennis. Don't say it. If you don't want yeah. to play tennis, say, look, I'd rather not play tennis, thank you. But don't say I'm horrible or useless or hopeless or I can't do that or I've never been any good at this kind of thing because when you say these things, your brain is like um, a donkey. That If you put a carrot on a stick in front of a donkey, the donkey will follow that carrot and will go for miles and miles and miles and miles until it drops dead. Your brain is the same. If you keep saying negative things about yourself, guess what? Your brain goes, all oh, right, so we're you, Sasari. Fair enough. I'm going to uh, burn the dinner. I'm going to have a small crash in the car. I'm going to make a real mess of that podcast I'm doing tomorrow because I'm useless. And you might not see it until you look for it, but that's what happens. Every time you build negative words and you bring them into the ether by saying them out loud, you're saying to your brain, I want to be a victim. I want to be guilty. I want to be useless. I want to be hopeless and helpless. That, that's how our thoughts have actions, isn't it? Yeah, our, our thoughts are... See, there are some people that believe that we all see the world differently. And I agree. Yes, we all see a blue chair and a, a magnolia wall. God, I hate magnolia. But that's the limit because you think about it, our brains are blind. Our brains don't have eyes to actually see. Our brains rely on electrical impulses for our sight, sound, and all the rest of it, but also our thoughts. So if you're thinking negatively, your brain goes, oh, right, okay, fine, let's think negatively. Let's carry on the, this downward spiral. Let's go there. Let's get depressed. Let's, you know, slump our shoulders and look down and feel really low and miserable. And if you do this now, if you actually sit down and lean forward and start speaking in kind of like a, a monotone and dull kind of voice and look down to the floor and just feel kind of really hopeless, that's how you feel. Your body goes into that mode. Whereas if you sit up straight, and this gets me every time, I can't help it. If you smile, a genuine smile, I have to laugh. And I feel great. I feel fabulous, right? I felt really depressed a few seconds ago, but now I'm sitting up straight. I've got a massive smile on my face. Every time I smile, I can't stop laughing. So, so can you see the difference? That's yeah. me telling my brain, I want to be positive. I want to to smile and be happy. And then the other one was, well, you know, I just don't want to 
do anything really. And this is what we're doing to ourselves all the time. Now, yes, of course, you're going to be, you're going insane if you try and be that happy, bright, positive, 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 positive all the time, even though somebody's just died or you've broken your leg. That's going to the nth extreme. I'm talking about being happy and upbeat most of the time because you're human. You're not an automaton. But conversely, what I'm saying is don't stop being negative most of the time. Stop beating yourself up. Stop using negative words and phrases because it's not helping you. It doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got me to write my list. What's number two? Number two, okay, this is brilliant. I love this. Now, this is not my idea. There's a guy called Tim Ferriss who um, has written several books, one called The 4-Hour Workweek and The 4-Hour Body and The 4-Hour Chef and what's the other one? Or Tools of Titan. That's a brilliant book. And it was his girlfriend that uh, created this. It's called The Jar of Awesome. And I'm holding up a jar with full of bits of paper. Now, you're going to say, Paul, this is just the list. No, it's not the list. It's different. What I want you to do, Again, is get yourself a jar, and, you know, this is great if you've got really young kids. This is good for kids as well, yeah? If you've got really young kids, get the glitter out and get them gluing, you know, jar of awesome or, you know, Paul's jar or something like that. If you've got older kids, just get them a jar. And what you do is every time you do something amazing, and I'm talking about helping other people here specifically, yeah, you – Write it on a bit of paper. I use those little waiter pads. You know those little slim pads that you see waiters write the orders down on? And every time you do something, you write it on a slip of paper and you stick it in this jar. And so I've got, I've put out three here, um, getting 1,000 views on a video. That was something that really, really meant was important to me. So I've written that down. That was really good. Um, Booked L. L was a model that I booked a couple of years ago, did a, a movie with. Uh, here's another one. Chatted to a young mum in Asda. She was having a really hard time. The kids were in a pain in the neck and everybody was staring at her in the queue like, like people tend to do. And so I just stepped in and started distracting the kids, having a bit of fun and they calmed down and she was just really grateful. Here's another one. Um, Guy was very grateful to me when his son was sick in the station waiting room. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. I was sitting in the waiting room, it's pouring with rain, waiting for a train, because that's what you do in stations, don't you? And his kid was about, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten, was chucking up everywhere, crying, screaming, really kicking off. So I ran to the gents, grabbed loads of paper towels and tissues, came back, gave them to the guy, and just calmed the guy down who was getting a bit ratty, you know. At the end of it, when he got his kid sort of cleaned up and calmed down, he calmed down, he, he just said, thank you. All of those things are me helping other people. And what you do is you write them on bits of paper and you stick them in your jar and you keep adding to them daily. And when you're feeling low, when you feel you've never helped anyone, when you feel you've got no skill, when you feel you're hopeless and useless, you stick your hand in the jar, you mix your hand around, you pull out a bit of paper and you read a few of these notes that you've written. And this is great for kids because a lot of kids think, oh, you know, I mean, I had depression as a kid really badly. I didn't try to kill myself when I was about 14 because no, I never got any encouragement, never got anything, any positive feedback, very, very rare. And this is a brilliant, simple, cheap idea. And it's not cheesy. It's a practical thing kids can do. And kids can write anything. This is for adults and kids. People can write anything on these bits of paper where they've helped someone else. Help an old lady across the road, um, taking the garbage out, 
helping your mum with the shopping, uh, you know, talking to somebody as, uh, during COVID, doing the neighbour's shopping, checking on mates to see if they're okay, all this kind of stuff. That is amazing things, very simple things, but a lot of people don't do them. So, so these you, are sort of random acts of kindness then? There you go. That's a lovely phrase. Yeah, basically random acts of kindness that are important to you. Yeah, like, okay, a minor achievement, they're getting 1,000 views. Isn't it a random act of kindness? It was actually a, oh, yeah, a, it was a video about helping people. So that was a random act of kindness in that respect. But, yeah, random so what, acts of kindness. So what's the kindness. difference then between the list and the jar? Just, just sort of, you know, the highlight that is, for me. The list is everything you have achieved your exam results, passing right. your driving test. Accomplishments. Accomplishments. Yeah, you're right, a very okay, smart cool. person, aren't you? Accomplishments. <laughs> I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to get it in my no, head no, you, so uh, I remember it. Yeah, accomplishments, things you have achieved. The jar is when you've helped someone in okay. a very small, insignificant to you way. If you're walking down the street and you see somebody and you smile at them and they smile back, you don't know, but you have made that person's day. That yeah. person lives alone, yeah, and never talks to anybody, never speaks to anybody, and you just walk past and give them a really bright, genuine smile, and they kind of look up and smile back. You could have just made that person's day. You could maybe just stop that person from committing suicide or hurting themselves or just give them a moment of brightness. And I think that is mega. I think that is so important. And we don't give ourselves enough credit I'm not talking about shouting from the rooftops. This is a personal thing. This is why it's a little jar that sits somewhere in your house. It's personal to you. And it helps us gain perspective, doesn't it? It was two things. You gain perspective, but also it just it builds that bri another bridge across that disconnect that you are a valuable person, that you have worth, that you can help people and have helped people. Yeah. It's all about, you know, self-respect, self-love, self-care, self-worth. And the, the third one is, is really fun. It's really simple and it's, it's worth a giggle. Whenever you have had or you've done something really cool, like, you know, met a friend for coffee, had a brilliant time, uh, just signed a brand new client, um, got a promotion, uh, got your kid to tidy their room, something that makes you feel really, really good. What I want you to do is to grab your camera and take a selfie. Not one of those selfies where you stretch your arm out and try to look sort of five that size, it's smaller. No, not one of them. A selfie where you're looking at your camera and you beam into your camera and you take a picture. And the reason why you do this is to remind yourself, again, that you have done good things that you can smile, that you can be happy, that you can feel good. Because oftentimes when we are in a bad place, we say to ourselves, oh, I've never done anything, I'm hopeless, I'm useless. Whereas if you've got that selfie on your, your phone, it acts as a reminder. It's like a, for those of people who know NLP, Neural Linguistic Programming, it's an anchor it reminds yourself about the fact, yes, you can smile. Yes, you have had good times. Yes, you have had fun. If you've got a bunch of selfies on your camera already where you're smiling, not drunk, I'm talking about genuine smiles and happy and all that, create a little folder and put those selfies in there and call them the happy me or the positive me or just me. 
so that you've got a place to go when you're feeling crap, when you're feeling low, when you're feeling that you're not worth it, when things aren't working out for you, that you can go to those photographs and go, yeah, look at that. I, I can have a good time. I can look good. I can feel great. Yeah. And actually, this is just, I mean, you know, we're sort of talking about the imposter syndrome for sort of women and, and, and sort of mums mainly. But actually, these those three are fantastic exercises to teach your kids, whatever age really, so that they are able to just start building up, I suppose, that self-worth and that self-esteem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm saying this with love, okay? So please don't get the wrong impression here. But sometimes kids can be awful. And I'm talking about amongst themselves. We've all had that situation where we've been bullied at school, we've been picked yep. on, or we've seen kids being picked on, and kids say cruel things and horrible things. Now, when I was a kid and you left school and went home, that was like your kind of sanctuary away from school. But unfortunately, one of the downsides of the advent of mobile phones and social media is that for some kids, they can't escape it. Because, you know, some kids will post horrible things about another kid. Oh, do you see what Paul was wearing at school today? That jacket that is about 15 sizes too small. What a, what a jerk. And look at the shoes he's wearing. Do you see, do you see the shoes he's wearing? They're like last year's model, all this kind of garbage. Yeah? Or do you see Paul make a fool of himself in the, in the classroom today? And that gets spread around. And if you, your child happens to be one of those that spends time on social media outside of school and they see that kind of stuff, that just augments those feelings of being low and yeah. worthless and having no self-respect. And I love social media to death and I love mobile phones to death. They, they do have a downside and that's one of them, definitely. So it's so important that we encourage our kids to to have those feelings of self-worth and self-taking care of themselves and to understand yeah. that, yeah, okay, times are tough now at school in the sense that they may be being bullied and it's horrible and it feels nasty and it isolates you. But what they need to understand is that the situation is temporary. It will end and that they, they can escape from it. And one of the ways of escaping from it is to actually switch their social media off or isolate those people just for that yeah. time. So, yeah, okay, I want to be on social media because I want to play games on my phone. Yeah, go for that. But just maybe encourage them to unfollow certain people and not to look at certain people's feeds. So that if that person is a bully at school and they're kind of transmitting that outside of school as well, home becomes a sanctuary home becomes Which is so vitally important yeah because otherwise they haven't got a sanctuary they haven't got no. a safe I, I hate the phrase safe space because we need to teach resilience to our kids yeah and, and to grown-ups as well i i personally it's ridiculous that you have safe spaces in universities and stuff because where where's the resilience where's the independence where's the strength yeah. If somebody gets offended because people talk in certain ways or discuss certain subjects, and it's completely and totally wrong. Physical safe spaces from a, from abuse, both physical and verbal, yeah, completely, totally, nutly. But having a safe space where you're not allowed to talk about X, Y, or Z, it's, it's garbage. The, the safe space actually has to be up here, doesn't it, between the eyes, really? 
in that we we build our own resilience, we build our own self belief, I guess, to know that you're, you're you're not looking like you believe you, you agree with that. No, I'm looking for a different word: strength and courage. How can you teach people? How can people learn to be strong and courageous with small s and a small c? if they're allowed to hide away yes, from nice. the rough de tough de It's like when I was a kid, let me give you another example. When I was a kid, children's playgrounds were made of steel and the floor was tarmac or concrete. So if you fell over, you grazed yourself, you bled, you broke an arm, you, you know, you, you put a hole in your, your scalp, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and it hurt like hell. But you got to understand about risk. You got to understand if it's pouring down with rain, you climb to the top of the the, the, the thing and you fall off, it's going to hurt. Whereas these days we build play areas that are all soft and, you know, soft foam and soft rubs. So if a child falls off, oh, I fell off, I bounced, it's okay. How are we teaching kids about risk and managing risk and making sensible decisions? We're not. We're taking it away. Yes, if you want to keep your kids safe, wrap them in cotton wool, tie them to the sofa, and never let them out the house ever, and they will be totally, completely safe, 100%. But they will not learn about life. They will not learn about risk. They will not learn that there are some fabulous people out there and there's some real douchebags out there as well. They have to learn that for themselves. They have to understand what risk is. I see kids today who have got their nose in their phone and they cross the road without even looking and they're expecting the traffic to stop. Now, most of the time it does stop or slow down and the driver hoots and gets angry and the kids just ignore it and walk on. But unfortunately, it happens every single day of the week. Some drivers are either distracted themselves or can't stop in time and kids get hurt. Thankfully, the, the death rate is, from accidents has dropped dramatically, but we're still getting people injured because they are fundamentally not aware of risk. Yes, bad things happen to all of us. It's the decisions you make during, before and after that bad things happened that lead you where you are today. And 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 that's it, isn't it? It's it's our, our lives are um a product of, as you say, the decisions we make. And and you know, we we make those decisions with the cards that we're dealt. And we have to take responsibility yeah. for making those decisions. And this is why we have the warnings on bags of nuts that say may contain nuts because yeah. we're not prepared yeah. to be responsible for those decisions. We want to blame everybody else. And I understand it's difficult. I understand it's difficult for me as well. But blaming other people takes away the responsibility for us to take action ourselves and the decisions that we've yeah. made. Accepting that, you know, the world is a challenging place, but also the world's a beautiful place. But we talked about this earlier on, about how we see things. If you want to see the world as a dangerous place, then guess what? It will be a dangerous place. And the, the one thing that gets me is the incredible generosity of strangers. And so I choose to see the world as being a, a place that is full of 
love and joy and happiness and mystery and generosity and helpful people, all the positive. Yes, I know there's negativity. I know there's wars and I know there's death. But I choose to see it as a good place. I know there are bad people, but that's my choice and that's my decision. And we have to get out there and live our lives. I often say that we should be like scientists. We should treat life like an experiment. Because if you think of it as a scientist, they do an experiment and they, they want to get a result. Okay, what happens if I mix this product with this product? What's the result? So they do the experiment and they get a result. And it's not kind of the result they're expecting. So they run the same experiment again and they get a different result. We should treat life like an experiment. We should do things and, and you know, do different things. And if we don't like it, we ditch that and do something else. And do something else and treat life like an experiment rather than treat it as, well, my life should go from A to Z and there should be an exact gap between A and B and B and C and C and D and so on. They should be perfect. Well, nobody's life is perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. Our lives are a series of ups and downs and plateaus and troughs and going in the wrong direction, going in the right direction, happiness, sadness, joy, ecstasy, misery. That's what life is about. And too many people are expecting life to be like a, a chocolate box of safety and zero risk. And yet those experiences have shown you about risk, have shown you about responsibility. And I think is by putting ourselves out there that that's when we learn. And when we learn, we are able to shape our decisions for the future, aren't we? This is the only way to, to learn. But it's only through making mistakes, Paul, that we actually learn. That's the thing. And yeah. and if we are if we are wrapped up in cotton wool, and if we are protected from taking risks, and if we you know if if we are sort of cosseted, so to speak, we're, we're never going to learn. Parents can do their kids the best service possible by letting them screw up. Yes. By letting them make mistakes, not 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 really tragic mistakes, but let them let them loose and let them make the mistakes and let them suffer a little bit. So they understand. Yes, so we understand and so we learn because it's only when we let our kids out into that big wide world to stand up for themselves that they do learn because however we try and offer advice, it's it's always going to be regarded as nagging. It's always going to be regarded as interfering. And what we really need to do is to equip them with the tools mentally and, you know, and emotionally to be able to deal with life's cock-ups, really. Yeah. And the point I'm making is you've got to let go. You've got to let your kids get out there and make them say, yes, of course, Bad things do happen. I completely accept that. I'm not naive. But for the vast majority of people, they will break an arm or they'll get told off by a police officer or they'll get so drunk that they'll, you know, fall asleep in somewhere stupid and wake up with a massive hangover. But they will have learned a valuable yes. lesson. Yes. <laughs> wow. Paul, thank you so much. We've got a lot to deal with and a lot to remember and specifically your your three um, sort of, you know, your three tricks, your three sort of techniques, um, your list, the jar of awesomeness 
and those selfies. So yeah, what, that's what, just three. I've got loads more. Oh, I'm sure. But what a great that no, those are great takeaways for parents to remember and also to share with their kids. So thank you. Paul, My thank pleasure. You so much indeed. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me, Kai. And we'll speak soon. Definitely. Thanks so much for listening to this entire podcast. If you want to help other parents looking for support, then please share this with your friends and family. Because if you found this podcast useful, then they will too. So please share via your social media. If you have any parenting questions, then please give me a shout through my email, which is toolbox at kygraham.com. And I may even use your question as a future podcast episode. If you want to connect, please come and join me on Instagram. Just search for Kai Graham. Also, could you do me a favour, please? Parenting teenagers can feel very confusing and isolating at times. And I believe that it takes a village to raise a child and we are here to support one another. I'd love it if you would leave a review on iTunes. And a good one, by the way. (laughs) Because when you do, it lets more parents out there know that there is support for them too. Thank you. And as always, this comes with much love.